The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Uh, <laughs> so I guess you know what you're in for. Uh, okay, uh, how's the sound level? Okay. So um, <clears throat> what we're going to do today is um, to practice and then talk about our experience and also um, have some time to talk about whatever you'd like to talk about relative to uh, uh, practice and uh, the cultures and, if you're interested, some of the science uh, associated with mindfulness. Um, and the way we'll do this is uh, we'll have practice periods and then uh, we'll open it up for discussion and then we'll have another practice period, we'll open it up for discussion. During the discussion times, feel free to use the restrooms because you know there's a lot of us and few of them so you can just leave as you wish and come back. And there'll also be uh, some break periods um, or practice in motion periods and so forth. So we'll go till uh, 1 o'clock, then we'll have a break uh, for uh, lunch. We'll take, say, uh, does an hour and 15 minutes sound okay? Take an hour and 15 minutes, so that'll bring us back here at 2.15, and then um, we'll uh, complete the program, which ends at 5. So um, that's more or less the, uh, the tenor of what the day will be. Um, so, any questions about anything? Uh, feel free. My favorite thing in the world is to take people's questions. So, if there's anything anyone would like to... Yes, Laurie? And just one comment. If you have a question, please wait for the microphone. We are uh, actually recording this. And also, people with hearing-assisted devices, it helps them to hear what it is that you're saying. So, please just wait so for the mic to you'll come You'll pass to that me. phone yeah. during Q&A Yeah, times. we have two of Great. them, so... Okay, let's begin. Take a moment to stretch up and settle in. The spine is erect through alignment and balance rather than effort. And the whole body hangs limp and loose from that central pillar. The face goes smooth. The jaw drops a bit. The shoulders release. The arms are limp and loose. The legs are happy not to have to bear weight. Although there may be pressure on the legs if you're seated on the floor, the muscles aren't having to work. 
as they do when we stand. So the five limbs, two arms, two legs, and what's above the neck, the head as a fifth limb, the five limbs automatically relax when we take a meditation posture, an asana, whether it's on a chair or floor. The uprightness of the spine leads to alertness, wakefulness, The relaxation of the body leads to an openness. The alertness fosters sensory clarity. The openness creates a quality that we call equanimity. The posture alone is an entire path. The whole practice is in the posture. The spine expanding up like a tree, trying to touch Father Sky, while the whole body hangs limp and loose, surrendering to the contractive force of Mother Earth. During your practice periods, you're invited anytime you want to once again stretch up and settle in. Whenever you need a little increase in clarity, perhaps to deal with sleepiness, or when you would like to deepen your equanimity, Stretch up and settle in. And notice how that impacts through the body on consciousness. Now, Bring your attention to the sensory experience of breathing. Choose a location in your body where for you it's natural to detect the physical sensation of breathing. Perhaps it will be at the tip of the nose or the upper lip. Perhaps it will be in the lower abdomen or the midriff or the chest. Perhaps you experience breath over the whole body all at once. Any location is fine. 
local or global. And rest your attention on the sensation there. And if you get pulled away, gently return to that location and those sensory qualities.
If the attention wanders, gently return. You may be pulled into mental images or mental talk. You may be pulled into external sounds or external sights if your eyes are open. You may be pulled into emotional body sensations or body sensations other than the breath. Pains, sleepy sensations, and so forth. It's okay if you get pulled away from the breath focus as long as you remember to gently return. It's okay if you're aware of a lot of other things going on, as long as you're not intentionally trying to do anything about them or focus on them. The intention is to stay as continuously focused on the breath location that you have chosen, as continuously focused as you can.
Remember, anytime you want, you can stretch up and settle in again. The erectness of the spine through balance and alignment helps with being alert and clear. It's a biofeedback device. As soon as the posture wilts, that's a negative feedback that you're sinking into semi-sleepiness. The relaxation of the body, especially if possible, the relaxation of the whole body at once, induces an openness, an equanimity, a state wherein experience can come and go with less push and pull. Our focus object is the physical sensation associated with breathing in some specific part of your body. It could be local, in a limited area, a certain area, or it could be global. You might experience the whole body breathing at once, an impact that's global. Any pattern is fine. Inevitably, the attention wanders. Into internal and external visual experience, internal and external auditory experience, and body sensation other than breath. When that happens, gently return.
Now, <clears throat> the most important point in a period of formal practice is when you transition from practice in the formal mode to practice in life. It's possible as the result of a practice period that there could be an increase in your tranquility or energy. There could be an increase in your overall sense of well-being. If anything like that is noticeable, keep in contact with it as you transition into the more active mode, talking, thinking, interacting, and so forth. Those qualities don't have to evaporate simply because we're going about life activities. So when you hear the bell, tune into any effects of the practice and try to maintain that momentum. Okay, good. <clears throat> so, as I mentioned, the day is going to be an alternation of periods of practice uh, with periods of discussion. So, um, we'll begin that process. Um, if there's anything that anyone would like to ask about uh, with regards specifically to your experience with breath meditation, of course. Uh, we would address those questions first, but also more broadly uh, about practice in general and so forth. Um, let's take a little while to talk about that. Okay, I think we already have some hands. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, you mentioned in the... Uh, right up for this little day long that you would be talking about some of the possible cul-de-sacs or dead ends in using breath meditation as a long-term vehicle for practice. So I'm very interested in uh, what you might have to say about that. Okay, so uh, the question, uh, was everybody able to hear? <laughs> well, um, actually, I will, that'll be part of the uh, sort of lecture portion, so I, I will get into that, but if I don't amply cover it, then definitely uh, uh, draw it out of me. <laughs> I think there's... Oh, okay, good. <clears throat> good morning. So two questions. When you talked about uh, clarity of erecting the spine and the equanimity of the more grounding, uh, do you want... Is it done internally without actual movement, or can there be actual movement? You mean the stretch up and yes. settle in? Yes. That's an actual move. That's actual. physical. Uh, that's that's the posture okay. piece. 
And then you try to notice how the posture impacts your consciousness, specifically that as long as you can keep the spine straight, you're going to have a certain amount of wakefulness, and the relaxing of the body opens you up, and then as sensory experiences come and go, if you can keep the whole body relaxed, that tends to induce a quality that we call equanimity. My, my second question was, I started with the breath at the nostrils, and then the breath got real quiet, and so then it sort of switched to the chest, so I just wanted to... Okay, this is a good point. You started with the nostrils, but then you said it got quiet, meaning I'm assuming that the breath maybe slowed down a little bit, um, but also that the sensation became less prominent. Is that correct? So you switch to an area of greater prominence. Um, There's absolutely uh, nothing wrong with doing that. However, um, one of my favorite phrases is, subtle is significant. Um, The fact that the um, breath uh, became less prominent, uh, the sensation of the breath going in and out, doesn't uh, necessarily mean that that sensation completely disappeared. It just became uh, a little more subtle or perhaps a lot more subtle. Now, uh, the way I like to uh, formulate mindfulness is to think of it as an attentional skill set. And there's three components to that attentional skill set. Concentration power, sensory clarity and equanimity. I've written and talked extensively about this paradigm on the internet. It's easily available if you, 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 know, if you go to uh, the internet. But when I talk about the clarity, but within concentration, clarity, and equanimity, there are actually sub-dimensions. So clarity uh, has one dimension that involves separating out the strands of experience, untangle and be free, divide and conquer. This is the main, one of the main innovative discoveries of the historical Buddha. So one dimension of clarity is separate out the strands. What part is mental image? What part is mental talk? What part is the emotional body? Okay, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a dimension of making distinctions. But there's another dimension to sensory clarity that involves the ability to detect subtle sensory events. And detection skills are, uh, represent a different dimension from uh, resolution or discrimination skills. Uh, one of my favorite uh, slogans is subtle is significant. I actually said it before, didn't I? So if you can do one of two things if a sensory phenomenon becomes very subtle. One is, okay, I'll go to a more prominent place. That's legitimate. Another is, I'm going to increase my, um, my detection skills by seeing if I can still detect um, what's happening uh, there. And that... Uh, you can learn by doing that also. So it is not inevitably the case that just because the breath or any other sensory object becomes uh, very diminished, that you necessarily 
have to go to someplace else. In fact, I would suggest that it's precisely when the breath sensation becomes very subtle that it becomes thin and it's easy to see the insubstantial and impermanent and empty nature of it. So from that perspective, you could elect to just stay uh, with that more subtle aspect. You're increasing your detection skills. Um, now, these are, generic, uh, these are generic attention skills. We can learn them with regards to the breath, but we can also learn them with, more broadly with regards to any and all sensory experience. Um, particularly important for human beings are um, subtle emotional body sensations. We're not particularly working with that directly at this program. We're focusing on breath, uh, but I will just tell you in general in terms of why I say subtle is significant. Um, in, in daily life, when things come up, they create pleasant and unpleasant emotional sensations. If the emotional experience is large, it's very evident what those sensations are and where they are. But small emotional sensations are happening all the time in daily life. And often they go undetected. So the ability, uh, the, the clarity, uh, the, the sub-dimension of clarity, which is the ability to detect what is subtle, that uh, becomes very applicable in dealing in daily life with human interactions, where it's important to detect how those interactions are in a, in a subliminal way hitting your emotional body. So these are some reasons why um, it's okay to switch to a more prominent object, sure, but also if you want to develop the certain aspect of clarity, you stay with the more subtle object. Thank you. There's someone behind you. Can, can and I actually, can I, yeah, that's good. Can I interrupt just a moment? Sure. We have some people sitting in the community hall that are on Zabutans, and I'd like to invite them to come into the larger space or for the people here to scoot up a little bit to just make a little room for those people that are yeah, and sitting on the floor in the community. You can home. come close. I, um, I'm industrial strength, but I'm user-friendly. You can get right in my face. <laughs> That's good. My question was a follow-on. Um, I think follows on nicely to what you were just saying. Um, so I was also no- I also noticed the um, quietness at the nostrils, and then I asked myself, "How do I know that I'm still breathing?" And then I doubt. I I, I wonder. Well, I know because I, there's there are other sensations that I can notice. So I'm the the uh, at the belly or the whole body sensation, and I'm thinking those are unconscious clues that I am still breathing. So I, I don't know whether I'm really noticing the subtlety at the nostrils or whether I'm, I'm knowing I'm breathing because of those other sensations. Well, you would kind of know it in. if it's at the nostril because you'd have the spatial perception that I'm having a sensation here. Um, so that's, there, there are many ways that you know you're breathing. Um, you can decide to work globally with the breath, or you can work just with one location or one quality 
uh, of body sensation. It really doesn't matter. What's important is to have um, a complete experience of whatever you're focusing on. And it can be local or global. So you would know that it's subtle sensations in your nostril because you would actually detect them there. If someone touches you, you know what part of your body has been touched. There's an intrinsic spatial awareness to, to body experience. So I would say that when the breath gets subtle at the nostrils, it starts to feel like, uh, I don't know, like the wind that would come from an angel's wing or something. It's just this feather-light, paper-thin, sometimes slightly vibratory flavor at the nostrils. But you would know that it's at the nostrils because you'd actually feel it there. If Clearly, if you feel nothing whatsoever in a certain location, I mean really, really nothing whatsoever, then you have to switch to something else. But it doesn't, from the general theory of how this stuff works, it doesn't matter whether it, uh, where you focus on it. Um, what matters much more is the degree of completeness in real time of your experience. And we're going to define complete. The completeness of an experience measures the degree to which you bring concentration, power, sensory clarity, and equanimity to that experience. Good. Others? Looks like we've got lots of hands. That's excellent. It's on. Yeah. Um, So when I rest my attention on my breath, I find it's hard to separate then actively kind of actuating my breath like consciously actuating it, and I'm wondering, I guess, is that okay, or do you have tips on how to just observe instead of actually actuate? This, huh? I'm going to paraphrase your question, and then um, if I don't nail it, let me know. (laughs) Um, So when I focus on my breath, um, To a certain extent, the breath happens automatically, but to a certain extent, I find myself actively controlling it. And what's that about, and what should I do? Did I more or less get what the question is? So different systems of mindfulness, and more broadly, different systems of meditation, are going to ask you to work with the breath in different ways. What I'm going to give you in this workshop is um, uh, a very generic sense of how to work with the breath, general principles for how to work with the breath. Um, uh, Individual systems of practice have an internal logic to them. Every system of practice has a, a way that it organizes the practice based on the, what, what's organic or natural to that system. So some teachers are going to tell you, <clears throat> uh, you should control the breath. Pranayama, okay? That means breath control. Other teachers are going to tell you, perhaps, well, you d- don't control the breath, okay? You need to not do that. So just let it go natural, etc. Um, If I were teaching the breath, I would say the important thing is to have 
a complete sensory experience of something related to the breath, local or global. And I would define something as being very, as being anything. Now, when you breathe spontaneously um, and it's passive, that creates sensations. If you are um, controlling the breath, that creates sensations. Now, in my own personal approach to things, a sensation is a sensation, whether it's something that came about because you were passively breathing or something that came about because you were controlling the breath. So from my perspective, I would say it really doesn't matter. But someone else might say it does matter because they have their own internal logic. Is that a sufficient answer to your question? Great. Good. We have some, have a bunch. That's great. I, let me just give a follow-up on that because inevitably I think someone's going to ask it as a related point. So there's a common um, sort of doctrine that um, breath is the um, lowest common denominator of practice. If you can't do anything else, you can do the breath. Everybody has the breath, and it, uh, with an implication that breath practice works for everyone, and you know you can always fall. Ba- everyone can always fall back on the breath. My experience in the field, out there actually teaching, is that that actually is not true. Um, a significant percentage of people, I would estimate perhaps as large as 20%, find focusing on the breath to be an uncomfortable experience, Uh, either because they are interfering with it or it brings up fear or produces tensions and so forth. So I'd just like to throw it out there that I don't think that breath is necessarily going to be um, a... uh, something that everyone uh, can do or should do. Some people find uh, focusing on the breath to be not a natural thing, but actually an uncomfortable thing. Now, there's two things you can do if focusing on the breath is uncomfortable. You can um, try to focus on the breath in some way that it makes it not uncomfortable, (laughs) or you can just penetrate the discomfort have a complete experience of the discomfort. So some people find that interference actually is physically or emotionally significantly uncomfortable. So my standard sort of suggestion in that regard is, okay, you've got a bunch of choices, and they're all good. It's all win-win. It all works. You can either say, okay, show me a way to focus on the breath that is comfortable, or... Um, well, I'm not going to focus on the breath. I'll do something else, some other practice. Or, okay, it's uncomfortable, and I will have a complete experience of that discomfort. At some point, it will break up, which it does. So that's, um, that's sort of my answer to um, I get uncomfortable when I try to focus on the breath. So, good. Um, there were some other mics around. I have a question. Um, when I get very still, and that gets what you mentioned, you called it feathery, I often have a sensation that I need to sneeze. And very often I can't catch it in time, and I do sneeze. I prefer not to sneeze. So sometimes I can focus like on my 
my stomach, my lower stomach, or some, or open my mouth and breathe through my mouth so that I don't sneeze. But do you have anything? How offer? often does the sneeze reaction occur? Um, perhaps so. Uh, every when I um, meditate, often I'd say depends on pretty much every time. Uh, like once or continuously? I, I once. Mean, just once? Uh, whatever works. <laughs> doesn't sound like it's a major problem. Okay, yeah. I would say, yeah, suppress it if you wish in the way you describe, or if you need to sneeze, be sure to put up an industrial strength barrier <laughs> uh, if there's other people around it. Um, I, uh, my, my mind tends to jump around a lot and, uh, when I, often when I'm, when I'm lost in, in thought, I, I might be dimly aware that I want to go back to the breath, but my mind seems to, to be very effective in saying, no, that's not interesting. And, uh, it's much more interesting to be, to be planning or, or whatever. And so, you know, despite my intention to, Get up early and come here and and uh, sit and attend to my breath. Um, it's almost there's an emotional quality of saying, "No, don't be silly. Don't go back to the breath." And and uh, I'm not sure what to do about that. Okay, well, this is this is a biggie. Okay, I I want to focus on the breath, but it's boring, and my Mind wants to have fun, but uh, and focusing on the breath is boring, not fun. So what do I do? Um, once again, I think it's important to think of these things in terms of win-win situations, uh, meaning there's a lot of possibilities, and you try something until something works. So, when you're, when you're thinking, are you consciously aware how fun it is to think? Do you actually, do you have some conscious sense that that causes your body to be relaxed, or you get some smile or rosiness, that it's like I'm, you're entertaining yourself, or you're doing... Or you're getting, making decisions that are important and that feels good. You're getting answers. Is there any tangible impact in your emotional body when you're enjoying thinking? It definitely doesn't make me relaxed. Uh, but I guess I get some pleasure somewhere in my head or something out of thinking. Okay. So actually, um, some people do notice that they physically relax when they think. Uh, now, it is also true that thinking can trigger uncomfortable emotional sensations, um, including tension. Uh, but thinking can also trigger uh, pleasant, uh, pleasant emotional sensations of having answers, being entertained, and so forth. So, <clears throat> one, um, one thing to know is that um, part of the... Uh, addiction to the thinking is actually not mental. It's somatic. 
the body seeks uh, pleasant sensations associated with being entertained and having answers. Um, and the body seeks to avoid unpleasant sensations that would be associated with not being entertained and not having answers. Uh, this goes to a point I made earlier today about subtle is significant. The kinds of sensations that I'm talking about initially in one's practice are often below the threshold of awareness. So they're not, they may not be detected. But because of the way you were talking about how you entertain yourself with the thought and contrasting that with the boredom of the breath, um, I wanted to probe and see perhaps you detected some of the body aspect associated with that urge to think. One either is able to detect that or not. But if you are able to detect it and have equanimity with it, then that works through the, some of the primitive drive to think. Essentially, I found that um, the body component that um, drives the thinking process, that the, basically there's four major body flavors associated with um, the uh, addiction to thinking. There's, um, well, maybe five. There's the, there's the pleasant sensation that you get when you're entertained or when you get an answer, a sort of joy, interest kind of flavor. Then there's the fear sensation associated with not having answers or having the mind toy taken away. And then there's also the sadness, sort of subtle bereavement flavor if the mind is not allowed to play. So it becomes like a, it's a, a child, if you take away the toy or you threaten to take away the toy, it, gets, it has fear and it has sadness flavors. Now, I'm talking about very, very subtle body events, but let's see, what did I say subtle is significant? So there can be fear flavors, there can be uh, sadness flavors. Uh, on the unpleasant side, and on the pleasant side, when you think, you may find this sort of rosy, pleasant body experience. And as I say, some people actually find their body relaxes a little bit, and that's pleasant. It's like, oh, now I can just go play, and the body relaxes. That's why you often forget about pain if you get lost in thoughts. Your body's relaxing, actually, a bit. So the ability to detect and have equanimity with the body sensations associated with the drive to think can be something useful to do. Um, Another thing that can be useful is to break the thought down into what part is mental image and what part is mental talk. So one strategy for dealing with, I can't focus on the breath because I constantly get pulled into uh, into memory plan fantasy and so forth. One possible strategy is um, focus on the memory plan fantasy for a little while and clear that, not by getting rid of it, but by untangling it and unblocking it uh, and somewhat breaking the identification with the thinking process. And you might find that that's more interesting than the breath, that the deconstruction of the core subjective self. And we want you to find this practice fun and interesting. Um, So if you find that more interesting, then maybe do that. And then that gets cleared away. If you're uh, interested in how to do that in specific, just go on the internet and dig up my manual, Five Ways to Know Yourself. It's free content.
It's easy to find on the internet. And there's uh, the way of thoughts and emotions, the focus in technique. You could just read that and that'll... So you give up focusing on the breath for a while and get interested in untangling and unblocking and de-identifying with mental image, mental talk, and emotional body sensation that's pulling you away from the breath. Alternatively, you can say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to just keep brute force bringing myself back to the breath. Okay? And if you do that long enough, uh, the concentration will, power will eventually grow. Okay? So you have, you have options here. Every, most people have this problem at the beginning. So one possibility is brute force algorithm. You just, okay, I, I wander a thousand times into see in, hear in, feel in, the inner activations. And a thousand and one times I come back. <laughs> uh, that's one possibility. Another possibility is, well, let's untangle and unblock all that stuff and then, you know, and deal with that. So um, uh, just one more point. So far, we've only basically, in the guidance and in the discussion, talked about your attention wanders, you bring it back. Your attention wanders, you bring it back. That in Sanskrit is called dharana, D-H-A-R-A-N-A. If any of you have ever studied yoga, you may be familiar with this term. Uh, The beginning of the inner limbs of yoga, dharana, or part of the inner limbs of yoga, dharana, dhyana, samadhi. So dharana is defined as the stage in in concentration where your attention wanders, you bring it back. The attention wanders, you bring it back. So far, that's mostly what we've talked about, and that's the essence of concentration. However, as I mentioned, I like to define mindful awareness in terms of not just one skill, but three skills. And one of the three skills is equanimity. Will define, or, or not define, but you can think of equanimity as the ability to allow sensory experience to come and go without push and pull. Now, normally when we think about equanimity, we think, okay, I'm going to focus on the pain and I'm going to open to the pain. Let it expand and contract, come and go as it wishes without interfering in whatever way that I find myself interfering. That's the normal way that Buddhist teachers teach equanimity. Um, However, I would like you to consider that there's another dimension to equanimity, uh, which is to allow something to come and go without push and pull, but not focus on it. To allow something to happen in the background while you are focusing on something else in the foreground. And I call that background equanimity. So we're going to be focusing on the breath in this workshop. As you focus on the breath, non-breath is going to arise with a vengeance. You're going to have mental images. You're going to have mental talk. You're going to have physical and emotional sensations that are not the breath. There's going to be external sights and external sounds. I would encourage you 
to create an attitude where you give total permission for all of that to come and go as it wishes in the background. To the point, ideally, where you actually taste a kind of um, gentle matter-of-factness with regards to all that other stuff. Concentration has its own reward taste. There's an actual samadhi rasa, an actual taste uh, 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 of being just in a concentrated state. But there's also upeksha rasa. There's a, a kind of taste of purification that you can develop with time. I, I know most of you probably are wondering what the heck I'm talking about because it sounds very abstract. Um, it's, you know, kids, they can't figure, they can't understand why adults drink coffee or eat spicy foods. It's like, who would ever want to put something like that in your mouth? But when we grow up, our palate changes. We develop a, 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 an understanding and a liking for others' tastes. So the same thing happens with spiritual maturity. There is a quality in consciousness that I cannot describe to you, but I can try to describe to you. It's, it's, it's a knowing that by the deta- because of the detachment that I am bringing to this moment of sensory experience, blockages from the past are breaking up and a brighter future is being created for me. It's a knowing that that happens. And that's the taste of equanimity. And once you develop the taste of equanimity, that's when, when your practice goes exponential. Because now you've got a positive feedback loop. When things come up, pleasant and unpleasant, and you are in this state of non-push and pull, there's an actual reward in that instant, and you actually are aware of it. So, and then, because there's a reward, you're, you, you come to like that vishuddhi rasa, that taste of purification, uh, it, that catharsis, and that encourages you to do, to do it even more and more. So I know it sounds rather abstract, um, and maybe a little hard to wrap your mind around, but... As you're focusing on the breath, you will become very aware of the eruption of everything else in the universe. Eventually, everything other than breath will erupt. All the past will erupt. All the future will erupt. All of the pain in your body and the sleepiness in your body will erupt. And even fantasy worlds, um, like what the Buddha saw before he died... I mean, before he was enlightened, and people see before they die where you get hallucinations and so forth, every single thing other than the breath will eventually arise if you sit there long enough with the breath. Um, Your ability to let that happen in the background, so detached that you don't even have to figure out what it is. You don't even have to 
pay any attention to it. You just are willing that everything other than the breath explode for as long as it wants. And you can taste that detachment. You will then taste that consciousness is being transformed. And this is one of the ways that you assure that the breath practice becomes something more than just a concentration exercise. Um, So the other thing you could do, it's more subtle, subtle is significant, Um, as you're bringing your attention back to the breath and you are aware that your mind is just going, 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 you can moment by moment give permission for that to happen but not intentionally focus on it. And that has a taste of a sort of taste. Ah, oh, I, I could give you... Okay, so you know the pictures of the people on the roller coasters when you go over the, at the very top of the roller coaster and then it starts to go down, right? And then everybody goes like that and they... okay. They're raising their hands up in a surrender gesture. That's, that's a moment of, that's what I'm talking about. Now, if they, because it's like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Okay, so, um, in, but you sort of know you're not, but it sort of feels like you are. And you sort of say, wow, that's okay, I'm going to die, okay. There's this sort of radical letting go of everything for just a moment. Now, if you can sustain that moment by moment, then all of the eruptions, everything in the world will eventually arise. If you try to sit for four hours without getting up, just about everything in the world will eventually arise. Your abil- and that's more or less what you should work towards, realistically, four-hour sits without suffering. It's totally feasible. Totally feasible. Never damage your body, though, but that's a whole other issue if you have joint things or whatever. But that's, anyway, everything's going to arise, and you say, okay, everything could arise, and I'm not, I'm so, I'm totally willing that that happened, and I'm not even going to need to do anything about it by paying attention to it. I give it background equanimity, and in the foreground is the breath. Well, that kind of practice is going to shake heaven and earth. And I think we should do some. Um, So we're going to do a four-hour sit. Where are you people going? (laughs) We're we're not, just an hour and a half, we just started. No, we're going to not do that. (laughs) Uh, We're going to have a little stretch break. Uh, and a washroom break and whatever you need break. And then uh, we'll come back here and uh, we'll do a four-hour set. No, just kidding. (laughs) But we will do more than a 15-minute set. (laughs) And um, like I say, I'm user-friendly. Come up and feel free to (laughs) talk about whatever you want. (laughs) 